0: So then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me and I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation lest by any means I might run or had run in vain yet not even Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised And this occurred because false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit once again this morning as we open the word of God together. We just pray that by your Spirit's ministry... You'd give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. So, Lord, you know what that means. Please prepare each one of us. And we ask now that your spirit would be who is speaking to us and teaching us as we look into what the word of God says this day. And we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, let me ask this morning, Who honestly is it that you're allowing right now to direct your life? Is it perhaps that your own thoughts and desires or maybe your ideas of the flesh are actually what's driving and directing your life? Or is it even possible maybe just the ideas or the pressures or maybe even the actions of someone else to some degree are actually becoming what's directing your life, what's driving your life? Well, look, it's important to recognize that a healthy spiritual life is a life that is guided by the spirit of God, a life that is directed by God, where we're obeying the Lord and not controlled by the influences of men, whether that be our own human influence to some degree in our life that's not healthy or even the pressures and influences of other people, And we see that being conveyed here in our passage as Paul's documenting his own experiences here in chapter 2 of Galatians. Remember, Paul has just spoken in the prior chapter about this powerful spiritual transformation that had happened in his own life. His own experience with the grace of God and how the Lord Jesus broke into his life and changed him as a man transformed him. And on top of that, the Lord not only graciously forgave Paul's sins and gave him the assurance of heaven and redirected his whole life, making him a child of God. But by the grace of God, the Lord then also graciously gave Paul a commission to be able to actually serve the Lord and to do ministry and to do things to participate in God's kingdom work and After Paul received this calling from the Lord, we're told by him in chapter one that directly after that experience, Paul then went out into the desert of Arabia where he stood for three years, just in a place of obscurity, a place of solitude where it seems he was just seeking to just get Established in his own spiritual walk, no doubt reading the scriptures, processing what this meant to be a follower of Jesus for himself. And after three years of growth, it says that Paul then went up to Jerusalem. And at that time, he just met together with only Peter and James for about a two week time period, 15 days. Now, we know from other accounts in the book of Acts that in Acts chapter 9, that since people were not yet ready there in the area of Judea to receive the reality that Paul had actually been changed after all the persecution and hatred and mistreatment towards the church, because they weren't ready to receive that Paul was truly a different man yet, it tells us that the Lord sent Paul then out to Tarsus. And for the next 10 years after that, Paul continued to dwell in Tarsus. He continued to no doubt grow and was ministering to some degree in the area of Tarsus. And during that same time period, we know that through the apostle Peter, the gospel then reached the Gentile people. That is when we say Gentile, those who were of non-Jewish nationality. That's what Gentiles are. Anyone who is non-Jewish and God used Peter, a good Jew who had come to Christ to bring the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles. And there became this, if you could say it, explosion of souls among the Gentile people. A healthy church gets established in Antioch and this church in Antioch is blossoming. So the church there in Jerusalem, which was kind of the mother church of New Testament Christianity, they send out, we're told Barnabas, to go and see what God was doing in Antioch. And when Barnabas showed up, it says that Barnabas could see, it says, the grace of God that was at work among the Gentile peoples and the church there in Antioch, which was predominantly of Gentile origin. Well, Acts chapter 11 tells us that as Barnabas stays there and starts to minister, he realizes he could use some help in ministry. And it's at that point that Barnabas has the thought, no doubt from the spirit of the Lord, I know who would be perfect to bring here to help me minister to this congregation here in Antioch. And we're told in Acts chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, that Barnabas departed for Tarsus to go seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for another whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. So take notice, Paul spends three years in the desert. We know he goes to Tarsus for 10 years. Then Barnabas goes and gets him, brings him to Antioch to help minister with him, where it says they minister for another year teaching the word of God. So right there, you have three years plus 10 years plus one year equals what? There's math. 14 years, right on. So look at verse one. It says, then after 14 years, well, that seems to make sense. I went up again to jerusalem paul says with barnabas and also took titus with me so paul says after 14 years i went again to jerusalem now the question does become 14 years after what after his conversion after one of the occasions when paul went up to jerusalem And the book of acts records many different times that paul actually went to jerusalem Uh, It seems more than likely, it's probably a reference to 14 years after his conversion. We know from scripture that Paul did go to Jerusalem multiple times. As I just referenced, in chapter 1 of Galatians, he tells us three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem the first time for 15 days and spent some time with just Peter and John, it seems, alone. We know as well from Acts chapter 11, at the end of the chapter, that after a prophetic word comes to Paul regarding a famine that was going to strike the area of Judea and make the church in Jerusalem struggle. And the Christians there go through a time of hardship financially that in response to that, it comes upon the heart of Paul and Barnabas and the church there in Antioch, which was predominantly Gentile to express their love, to send financial aid to their brothers and sisters in Christ there in the church in Jerusalem. And as a gesture of Gentile Christians showing love to their fellow Jewish Christian brothers to diminish some of this animosity and to care for one another as God's family, they take up this financial relief, if you would, this donation, and then they bring this financial relief to the church in Jerusalem. And it's Paul and Barnabas we know who bring it to them, and they give it to the leadership there to then disperse among the church. We also know in Acts chapter 15 on a third occasion, very prominently showed in the scripture that Paul goes up to Jerusalem as well, where there's a large council, a church council that meets. And remember, they were settling once for all this issue that the gospel of salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, not through observances of the mosaic customs or having to become a jew first and then ultimately becoming a christian because it says there were false teachers who kept pressing the issue no you must become a jew first then through judaism you can make your way to christianity they were even saying that unless people were circumcised the picture was to observe the entirety of mosaic custom and law you can't even be saved well this was crucial And so we know that Paul and Barnabas went to the church there and they had this whole church council that took place and all the leaders prayed and talked through this and we see gifts of the Spirit at work and ultimately they came to a resolution that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, no work or nothing else beyond that. And then they wrote this official letter of documentation at that council and shared it with the whole church. Now, when Paul says here in our verse, verse 1, after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus, and then the rest of chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, he's describing this time of going up there and the events that took place. Question becomes, which particular event is he describing? Is he talking about the time when he went up with the relief offering in chapter 11, that second time he went up? Or is this a reference to some of the events that happened during Acts 15 when the church council met together? Look, at the end of the day, I don't think it is critical to have to know that, and we can't be dogmatic because we're not assured of that. Personally, my own conviction is I tend to think that this is a reference to the earlier visit In Acts chapter 11 that we're getting some additional details of what happened during that first time or you might say that I guess the first time he spent some extended time there going up and bringing that financial offering for a few reasons. First of all, the 14 year chronology that I spent the time pointing out at the beginning of the study just seems to line up very clearly to me. It just seems to make sense chronologically. Secondly, in verse 2, Paul says there that he communicated these things privately to the leadership. Now, that indicates he met privately with the leaders, and the leaders, the pillars of the church, as are described in the same section here, they talked through these things and were kind of having these discussions. Acts chapter 15 at the church council, it ends up including the entirety of the church of Jerusalem At one point where it seems Paul here is referring to more of a private meeting as well from verse two Paul seems to be conveying that he went up to make sure he wasn't doing anything in vain spiritually and at this first trip up to Jerusalem earlier in his life and ministry he's trying to just validate that he is on the same track doctrinally as the church in Jerusalem he's kind of trying to confirm some things in his own life and ministry by the time you get to Acts chapter 15. Paul is dogmatically convinced and nobody's going to tell him otherwise that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and that these other guys are just false teachers as well as the fact in Acts 15, they write up a whole resolution and an official letter as the result of this council meeting as doctrine for the church. And Paul makes no reference to that here in chapter two. It would seem that it would just be very easy for Paul to just say, look, we already discussed that. All the churches decided, read the letter, just read the resolution. But he makes no mention of the resolution because likely it had not been accomplished. It was perhaps that third journey when he went up, when that actually took place. So I tend to see this as that earlier visit in Acts 11 and that we're just kind of getting some glimmers, some insights of some of the things that happened that first time he went up and brought the financial relief and kind of met with some of the leaders and spent some time that early on, these were the early... uh, Uh, rumblings, if you would, of some of the problems that had to be resolved down the road in the church council in Acts chapter 15. So he says, I went up this time with Barnabas, which we know Barnabas went with him to bring that financial relief. Barnabas was a Jewish believer converted to Christ. And he says, we also took with us Titus. Titus, remember, was a a Gentile or Greek who had become a Christian and who becomes kind of one of Paul's mentors and protégés In ministry, the book of Titus is written particularly to him. Paul goes on, verse 2, to describe now some things about this event. He says, I went up, that is to Jerusalem, by revelation, and I communicated to them that which I preach among the Gentile people. But notice, privately, he says, I did this, to those who were of reputation, those who were those recognized and important, the leaders, the indication is, lest, he says, by any means, I might run or had run in vain. So verse two, Paul's now kind of describing to us why particularly he went up to Jerusalem this time where the early apostles were for this particular meeting. It says there in our verse, look at it in verse two. He says, I went up by, here's the reason why, I went up by revelation. And what Paul's saying there is he says, I didn't go to Jerusalem because I was summoned to attend. I didn't go to Jerusalem because the apostles there said, hey, you need to come here. We need to have a meeting and, and have a council session. He says, no, I didn't go because I was summoned. He says, I went up as the direct result of revelation the idea is because the lord revealed something to me paul says the reason why i went up to jerusalem this time that he's describing here in chapter two is he says the lord revealed something to me he showed me something and spoke something to me that told me you need to go up to jerusalem and have this meeting and spend some time there as the lord had on other occasions Revealed things to Paul he once again in this situation showed something to Paul He spoke something to him and in direct response to that because it would be helpful It seems both for Paul as well as for others Paul went up in response to what the Lord showed him again Perhaps as you read some of what Paul's describing here Perhaps the Lord saw that Paul at this stage in his ministry, which was somewhat earlier on needed a little bit of encouragement And reassurance because of some things that he was facing, the spiritual opposition, the false teachers, the Judaizers who were trying to deviate the track of what the gospel message of grace really was. And that this trip would result in Paul getting some much needed assurance and encouragement that he needed to remain faithful to his calling in the Lord. Uh, Paul seems to refer to that in this chapter, that by the end of it, the Lord used Peter and James and John to give him the right hand of fellowship and really encourage him to keep on track with what he was doing as they kind of acknowledged his ministry. But the point I want you to take note of is Paul's spiritual walk was guided by the spirit of the Lord. It was being guided by the spirit of the Lord and obeying what the Lord was telling him, what Jesus was revealing to him was what he sought to respond to as he lived out his Christian life. What God was revealing to him, speaking to him about things, showing him things, this is what Paul was obeying as he lived out his Christian life, what God showed him, what the Spirit spoke to him. And folks, look, this is how we are supposed to learn to live out our spiritual lives. We're to learn to live out our spiritual lives by learning to obey what God is directing us to do. Learning how to hear the voice of the Lord ourselves and respond to that. Learning how to let God show us things and then do what he directs us to do. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we hear read the word revelation there in verse one. It's like revelation. What's that? That sounds kind of doesn't mean we're always going to have this incredible revelatory experience all the time. There may be a time or a occasion where the Lord may powerfully do something to reveal something to me or reveal something to you. Uh, you know, but the Bible seems to indicate that a lot of times it's just the still, small voice of the Lord. And that, you know, if if a horse isn't stubborn, you don't got to yank hard on the reins, right? The whole purpose of a horse being broken and responsive is just light. Uh, touches that the horse would be responsive so again god doesn't want to have to do these powerful revelatory things in our lives all the time as if somehow we need that to be responsive he'd much rather us like jesus said my sheep know my voice that we know his voice and as you read his word day by day god reveals things to you god shows things to me as we worship the Lord and walk with the Lord, He gives us revelation regarding what His plans are. And sometimes He reveals things to us. Most importantly, He just wants to keep revealing what His will is to us. And so sometimes He may say, Look, this is what I want you to do, or this is something I'm showing you. And when He reveals light to us, our one responsibility is to trust and obey. And that's what Paul did. He says, The Lord gave me a revelation. So I went up to Jerusalem and notice the reason he went there. It tells us in verse two, he says, I went up specifically to communicate to them, the gospel that I was preaching among the Gentiles. He says to make sure that I was not running in vain. Paul wanted to explain. It seems the gospel of grace that he had been preaching and he wanted to make sure by just kind of talking us through with the established leadership in Jerusalem. Hey, I am on track here doctrinally, right? This is the same message you guys are preaching down there in Jerusalem, right? The gospel of grace, says, I want to make sure I'm not you know, out here doing something somehow that uh, perhaps I'm confused about. This is the same gospel for years you've been preaching there at the church in Jerusalem. And he wanted to share with them kind of his doctrinal stance on some things and make sure there was confirmation and they were all on the same page. Now, let me just say, That, to me, is very interesting because it shows me both the humility of Paul the Apostle and the humanity of Paul the Apostle. That Paul had enough humility, despite all the spiritual revelations he was receiving, I mean, and the giant that this man truly was spiritually, if we look at his life in our New Testament Bible. The giant that Paul was, but yet Paul had the humility to willingly interact with, with other respected godly leaders to make sure he was on track with his doctrine, with his teaching, with his ministry. I, I'm, I'm not running in vain here, am I? You, you do see God in this, and you're doing the same. And and I appreciate his humility as well as his humanity because Paul reminds me here that everybody at times struggles with doubt and discouragement. And sometimes we need a little you know, encouragement and affirmation, a little support to keep at it. Paul's going to say in this same letter at the end of the chapter Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap a harvest if we don't lose heart and give up. Notice Paul says us. He includes himself. He says we all get weary sometimes, whether it's spiritual opposition or just self-doubt. We all sometimes need that affirmation. So notice as Paul handles this meeting, it says, verse 2 there, that he went up and he met privately With those who were of reputation. Again, the idea of those of reputation is the established leadership, those who were the recognized leaders in the church in Jerusalem. He wanted to hear their counsel. He knew they were God's appointed leaders in the established church, but yet Paul shows wisdom here. He understood the wisdom of just personal and private conversation. He said the whole church didn't need to be involved in this matter. I didn't need to create concern or confusion. I I just needed to talk this through with Peter and James and some of those who were there. Verse three, Paul says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled, however, to be circumcised. And this occurred, take notice verse four, this whole thing was occurring because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth, sneaky in the idea is. To spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom he says, verse five, we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So here in verses three to five, we start to get some indication of exactly what problem Paul was dealing with and having to work with that required him to go up to Jerusalem. Why the Lord revealed to him, Paul, you you need to go up and work through this there with the church in Jerusalem. In verse 4, take notice again, he directly says all this situation was occurring because, he says verse 4, it was occurring because false brethren secretly brought in, he says, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty that we have in Christ, were trying to bring us into Notice, false brethren. That's a strong term. Paul says they're not real brethren. They're false brethren. They're professing to be followers of Jesus, but they're promoting false doctrine. And he says they came in trying to control people to their selfish ends. And notice Paul even refers in verse four, he says they came in, look at the term secretly. What Paul's emphasizing is they weren't invited into the church, they infiltrated the church. They snuck their way into the church, pretending to be a part of it, pretending to be true believers. And Paul says what they did is they came in and they disrupted our liberty and the spiritual freedom that we have in a grace-based relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the term Paul makes there in verse 4 where he indicates we have liberty in Christ Jesus. We have liberty in Christ Jesus. Again, the Bible teaches that we have liberty from the obligations of the Mosaic law when we're in a relationship with Christ Jesus. Because Paul says, writing to the Romans, Christ is the end of the law to all those who believe. Jesus said, I didn't come to set aside the law, I came to fulfill it. Jesus and his humanity fulfilled Perfectly in a sinless, righteous, perfect life as a man, what you and I cannot. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf and then died sacrificially as the substitute to take the punishment for our sin so that we could be freed from the demands and the obligations and the judgments that are a part of the Mosaic law because we needed deliverance from that because none of us could maintain and keep that. And so. Paul, understanding this, says, look, when Jesus came and did what he did, he says, you know, if righteousness could be attained by the law, he's going to say later in the chapter, then Christ would have died in vain. The point is, Paul starts to say, it couldn't be. It's only through Jesus. So now we have liberty. We've been freed From those demands of the law, the requirements and the rituals and all the feasts and the observances, all these things, he says, we've been liberated from that so we can just have a love relationship with Jesus. And love's a much higher motivator than law anyway. And he says, we've been set free from these things so that we can walk by the Spirit. He says, God writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our heart now. It's not a written code, it's internal impressions. As the spirit of God rules over our heart and we allow ourselves to be led of the spirit. And he says, here we were trying to enjoy being led of the spirit, not upkeep lists and rules of what was said to be spiritual. And he says, these brethren, these false brethren came in and they despised our liberty in Christ and they were trying to subvert that. They were trying to rob us of that privilege saying, no, 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 you need to go back under the customs of Moses. And if you want to be a real spiritual person, you also need to observe these things and adhere to these restrictions. And Paul says they were trying to bring us into bondage and make us slaves. And so important to recognize for ourselves to be brought into listen, to be brought into any type of a legalistic code of what it means to be spiritual is bondage when someone tries to inflict upon us or we wrongly in our own ideas begin to afflict upon ourselves some legalistic code of you have to maintain these certain restrictions and maintain these certain requirements and if you do those things or don't do those things that's what really makes you spiritual or makes you holy or more spiritual or more holy listen folks that kind of pressure coming from others or coming from ourselves does nothing but lead to bondage, to enslavement in our lives. And Paul and Barnabas, as well as Titus, stood against this. That's why verse 3 he says not even Titus, who was a Greek, meaning he had never been circumcised, was compelled to be circumcised. See, Paul and Barnabas were Jews. They had already gone through the rite of circumcision. Titus was a Greek who had not observed that in his prior life, but yet they were trying to impress strongly upon Titus. Listen, you Gentiles, you need to still observe Judaism so this religious ritual is necessary. And he says that Titus stood his ground, and it says he would not be compelled, that is pressured, forced to be circumcised. The idea is that he would not give in to their guilt tactics or their pressure to make him feel less spiritual, Titus held to the assurance of, listen, I'm saved by grace, and I walk in grace, and I understand what grace is. That's why Paul says there in verse 5 regarding these individuals, we did not yield, look at it, we did not yield submission, he says, for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul knew that the truth of the gospel was important for them as well as for all believers throughout human history. And so because of that, they refused to submit to this pressure that was trying to, in essence, change the message of the gospel and distort the gospel message of salvation. So Paul says we didn't yield to their religious rules. We didn't care. Paul's going to say who they were, how important they seemed or what they were trying to convey. He says they might have been trying to force us to observe certain rituals, but we didn't submit to their ideas. They might have said, look, this is spiritual, or if you don't do this, you're not holy, or try to get us to compromise what the gospel was. But he says so that the truth of the gospel might continue and that it might remain accurate. Paul and these other church leaders, notice, they took a very strong stand, folks, for the authentic gospel. And throughout all of church history, they knew this was their duty and stewardship for the health of the church And we must know that it is our stewardship and that it is crucial for us to maintain and to uphold the authentic gospel and the biblical truths of what New Testament Christianity is and is not. And we have to safeguard that nothing is added to God's word and nothing is diminished from God's word. And this is important for all of us to stand for sound doctrine within the church, whether it is people trying to introduce legalism into Christianity and into the church, saying, well, okay, you can be a Christian, but Christians must do these things, or Christians can't do these things, which may not necessarily be biblical things. I'm not talking about honoring scripture. I'm talking about Jesus and a dress code. I'm talking about Jesus and you have to be baptized in this particular way or Jesus and you can't watch this or you can't listen to that or just all these extra little gray area, these things that we envision as spiritualized or Jesus and a particular Bible translation or Jesus. And, and, and you can go an infinitum, the things that are become issues of that. This is truly a spiritual Christian. This is kind of a second class Christian or real Christians do this, those who sing that kind of music, they're not real Christians. And, and this kind of stuff happens. And we have to realize that kind of stuff is legalism. That kind of stuff is legalism. Or when we try and overimpose upon people our ideas or our even convictions. It's good to have convictions. The New Testament says if I have spiritual convictions – They're my convictions, and I should honor those convictions. Sometimes they're gray areas where we have freedom. I should honor those convictions, but it is not right for me to enforce those convictions upon you or to try and stumble you by being so consumed with my convictions that it ends up causing division between us. So, whether it is introducing legalism or the other side of that, which is just wandering down the fundamental truths of the Bible, you know, questioning things about christ and his divinity or you know clear fundamental doctrines of the bible we're trying to water them down and make compromises well this is a new generation and those things don't either side of that it's it's destructive the bible tells us in jude that we are to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all handed to us as saints and we all have that responsibility even here as we see paul and titus and barnabas leading the charge in that And we learn from what Paul's saying here in these verses, particularly, that there were times in his spiritual life where people were obviously, verses 3 to 5 show, trying to compel and pressure and control their spiritual lives. And Paul says we would not let them interrupt our spiritual freedom, that freedom to be led by the Spirit and walk in relationship with Jesus. And this is important because the Christian life, as I've said, is intended to be lived in liberty the liberty to listen to the Lord, the freedom to learn how to hear God's voice for yourself through the word of God and through his spirit dwelling in you as a Christian and to follow what he is showing you and to do what he is speaking to you, living in relationship, letting Jesus guide you. Look, he says here, we would not yield submission to them for one hour. We wouldn't let them compel us. The reason why is because we're supposed to be yielding submission to Jesus that's who I'm supposed to be submitting to. That's who you're supposed to have compelling you is the Lord compels you to do what you're supposed to do. And you yield submission to that. Remember what Paul says in the Corinthian letters? He says, The love of Christ compels me. Paul would say, writing to the Ephesians, Work out your own salvation. And then he says, For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Again, we don't work for our salvation. But there's a reason you were saved because there are good works that we we're foreordained in advance to carry out. So he says, You work out your salvation as God's working in you to will and to act by his spirit internally according to his good pleasure. I'm not to work out the salvation that I see happening in your life. The idea is, You're saved, I'm saved. We didn't work for our salvation but I have to be careful and you have to be cautious that we're not looking at someone else's life and trying to over emulate how God's working in their life. Cause we think that's spiritual. Oh, well that's how God works in his life. So I, I got to kind of completely adopt that hundred percent mold. Be careful there, work out your salvation. God's called you. Who's God made you to be? And how does God working in your life? Listen to what God's telling you and walk in those things And don't ever let anyone, as Paul and Titus and those would not hear, don't ever let anyone try and start to subvert the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's what Paul's impressing here. He says, we didn't yield submission to them for an hour. We wouldn't let them play the Holy Spirit in our life and start trying to overly control us. Look, do not stand for that. And I'm telling you, as a Christian, and perhaps some of you know this from your own experience, there are times when people will try and come in and overrule and subvert the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And sometimes it is conscious and willful, and other times people are well-intended, and they don't even recognize they're doing it, but the bottom line is they're subverting the role of the Holy Spirit – in your life by feeling it's their job to play the spirit of god in your life to tell you this or direct you that or correct you on this and listen god uses us in each other's lives but don't let somebody play the holy spirit in your life you listen to the holy spirit you do what god is telling you to do and honor that above all else and you're keeping yourself in grace-based christianity as you listen to the spirit of truth according to the word of God's truth, and you carry out your Christian life. So Paul says, look what he goes on to say, verse six. But from those who seem to be something, you almost sense Paul's a little sarcastic maybe there. From those who seem to be something, whatever they were, he says, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So notice Paul here declares it was his understanding of God's perspective, knowing God, and that's why it's good to know God, understanding who God is, and from God's perspective, he says, towards humanity, that's why Paul says, I didn't allow myself to be overly impressed with any man because I understood God's perspective. He speaks here in our verse, verse six, look at it uh, as, of he speaks of those who seem to be something. The idea is, is they, they gave the impression that they were important. They wanted to establish an image and indicate that they were special, that they were hyper-spiritual, more spiritual, more important than other people, behaving like they had certain authority, conveying the way that they should be followed. Again, and in the spiritual arena, there will always be, even as it was the Pharisees in Jesus' day, those who like to seem that they are something special spiritually. Again, whether it's the, you know, outfits that they wear to, you know, point out their spiritual ranking or whether it's their titles or their roles or whatever. You know, they want to seem to be something. Wow. He seems like he's something. Wow. He seems like he's somebody spiritual, more spiritual than everybody. And and that's going to happen like the Pharisees in Jesus Day. And sometimes, again, just people to satisfy some needs some people like to tell people what they do they enjoy controlling other people and being the final authority in their life paul says what, i look what he says whatever they were he says it really makes no difference to me <laughs> paul says whatever they were i'm not going to judge any man he says it just didn't really impress me that much it really didn't he says convince me that i needed their help again no doubt they were saying to paul paul you lack understanding your message is incomplete You don't have the true message, and we understand with our authority what it really means to be spiritual and godly. And Paul says at the end of verse 6 there, those who seem to be nothing, I like what he says, he says, they added nothing to me. Paul says, my message wasn't incomplete. I had God's message, and I was okay with that. I had the complete message of the gospel of Christ, which is fully sufficient to do everything God needs to do in our lives. Paul says, I understood that I was complete spiritually and they did not add anything to me or to my message. And ladies and gentlemen, by way of application, let me again say, beware of those who ever try and convey to you that your spiritual life is lacking something. And therefore you need to add to your spiritual life what they're espousing to really be a great Christian or to really somehow experience all God intends. Whether it's you got to have this book or this set of teachings or it's you got to, you know, pray this particular prayer or there's always kind of at times it seems these ways that come around where people want to indicate like you're, you're lacking a little something spiritually. That's why you need this. And if you have this, then you can be a rock star Christian. Then you'll really be on fire for Jesus. Jesus. And somehow it implies the fact that we're insufficient or incomplete spiritually, that God left us lacking. Well, listen, the Bible would disagree with that. Paul says in Colossians 2, even as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, being rooted and grounded in in your faith in him. Paul says in that same chapter, in chapter 2 of Colossians, he says, For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Do you hear that? Oh, I feel like I'm an incomplete Christian. I feel like I just, I'm not like other Christians. Jesus would say, no, there's only one kind of Christian, a Christian who has Christ in them and a Christian who has Christ who's a part of their life. And Jesus says, I'm not incomplete. So you're not incomplete. You have me, you're complete. Paul writing or Peter writing as well in chapter one said, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be a partakers of the divine nature. Again, do you hear the language there? God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Oh, I don't know how to live life. God says, I've given you everything you need to live life. I don't know how to be godly. God says, I've given to you everything you need for godliness. You have the word of God. You have the spirit of God. You have the exact same presence of the Lord Jesus Christ living in you, working in you. You are not insufficient. You have the same opportunity as every person who's a follower of Jesus Christ to experience God's best, to be used to the greatest degree. Paul didn't feel that he was missing something doctrinally or needed their endorsement. Paul, if you really want to be you know, successful, you need our endorsement for your ministry somehow. He says, Whatever they were, he says, I like what he says, verse 6, God shows personal favoritism to no man. That was the crux of it for Paul. Paul understood, look, God doesn't show favoritism. Again, the word favoritism speaks of special favors, extra blessing for those who seem what? More important. Favoritism is giving somebody special treatment because they seem important or they're more valuable in somebody's mind. And he says, look, God doesn't do that. God does not show partiality. It is hard for us as human beings to swallow sometimes, but the truth of the matter is this, hear me, God is not impressed with anybody. He's not. He really, truly, authentically is not impressed by any human being, ever. And he never will be. Now, to me, that's liberating. I don't have to try and impress God because you go, it won't work. I don't have to really, to some degree and I'm not saying we shouldn't be respectful when there are times to be respectful of those with authority or you know, and that's not my point. My point is is, God doesn't show partiality or favoritism. He doesn't see people inferior or superior by who they are or what they do, or what their giftings are, their titles are. God doesn't show partiality. It would be against His just nature. And so we have to remember that for ourselves. Do I show partiality to people? Am I ever inclined to show favoritism in some way, whether I'm giving somebody else special exceptions or doing a little bit more for somebody else for some reason, whatever it is, and doing less for somebody else? That's wrong. God doesn't do that. I don't have a right to do that. Or am I ever showing favoritism by maybe not requiring somebody else to adhere to the same standards and because I feel pity or compassion, oh, well, they've had, and they've had a hard, and, and and so I show favoritism the other way. And I don't require somebody to uphold the same standards because I'm showing favoritism to make it easier and making concessions for them that I wouldn't make for somebody else. There are multiple ways to show favoritism, and God says, I don't do it. You don't get to do it either. So it's important for us to see the value and the importance of everybody, to not be overly impressed with anyone but at the same time to not be, you know, treating someone again as if they're less important. Everyone has value. You know, the longer I have walked with the Lord, one thing has become a constant in my life, I feel like, is I become less and less impressed with people and I become way more impressed with God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? <laughs> Just keep getting more impressed with God and to realize it's all about him. So Paul says, in light of this, verse 7, on the contrary, in other words, contrary to the impression of these who are trying to sell themselves as important, on the contrary to these false brethren who were saying they were right, he says, when they, that is, he's going to say the church leadership, saw the gospel for the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, had been committed to me, even as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter... For he who worked effectively in Peter, he says, for the apostleship, again, to the circumcised, to the Jews, also was working effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James Cephas, another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me and Barnabas, they extended to us, he says, the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So notice, Paul says, contrary to what these false brethren were trying to convey they were so right and i was so wrong and he says thankfully he says the lord drew me to go up to jerusalem and the apostles he's saying here peter james john those he says who were there he says he refers to them as those who were the pillars in the church and the idea of the pillars in the church there again he's not trying to exalt them that would be foolish he just said what he said about no favoritism he's just acknowledging what they were what do pillars do They uphold things. So he's saying the true leaders, those who were truly God ordained, selected by Jesus, anointed by the spirit, given their role and raised up those who were upholding the church in Jerusalem, who were the genuine leaders that God had endorsed. He says they recognize that in the same way, he says, that God was working through Peter in his ministry as the one appointed to go, he says, committed to Peter a ministry to go to the Jews, the circumcised, he says they began to realize, oh, in the same way, God has now just selected and anointed Paul to be the apostle, to be the primary one to pioneer reaching the Gentile people, to bring the gospel to them. That's why Paul says in verse 9, when James, Cephas, who's another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be the pillars, when they perceived, notice, when they sensed or recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and that they would continue to go to the circumcised or the Jews. What Paul's indicating here is the established leadership recognized his calling. They recognized what God was doing in his life, the special measure of grace. Paul says they perceived the grace. Of God that had been given to me for this calling for this ministry they sensed there was a measure of God's grace that had been given to Paul that he was to operate in this way and that is they could see an evidence that God was using them and that the favor of God was upon the ministry that they were doing That the Lord was blessing their labors and when they perceived it Paul says they gave us the right hand of fellowship. Now, what Paul was trying to convey here is these existing church leaders, they recognized our calling in ministry. They sensed what God was doing in our lives. They could see God's grace at work in this way. And let me just say as well that we never become to any extreme, which isn't good. That's an important balance. And Paul mentions it right in these same verses here. He says, one group, I wouldn't let them control me and tell me I... But then Paul says, but I also received the endorsement and the recognition of the existing church leadership that God had established in Jerusalem who confirmed my calling. And look, it is healthy to have our work spiritually or the things that we are doing at times be something that can be confirmed by existing church leaders, by those who God has put in those roles. It gives great encouragement. It gives a sense of credibility and confidence to what we're doing. You know, I thoroughly encourage, take the time, you know, seek the Lord's confirmation. It's a very healthy thing to be able to have that, to make sure that we're on track, to have that encouragement that others sense. Hey, I see the Lord in that. I see God's hand upon you and to give you that encouragement. That's the idea of the right hand of fellowship. Hey, we're not doing the same thing. We're going to the Gentiles, but you're going to the Jews, but the Lord's working just in different ways. And I think this reminds us as well that when the Holy Spirit is directing ministry, not everybody's going to be doing the same things. Peter was reaching the Jews predominantly. Paul was reaching the Gentiles. But when the Holy Spirit works, God's people will be used in different and unique ways. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit who's the source of them all. Different kinds of service, but we all serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who works in all of us. Look, important for us to remember that. When God works, he's going to work in different ways, through different individuals and unique styles and in different capacities and ministries. The important thing, what Paul alludes to, is he says twice in verse 8, it was the same God working effectively in Peter that was also working effectively in me. What he's referring to there is the supernatural enablement. That the same God that was energizing and empowering Peter spiritually was energizing, effectively, powerfully working in me. And we were both serving in the power of God's Spirit. Paul concludes verse 10 by saying, The only thing they desired once they said, Hey, Paul, we see God's hand on you. Go for it. Continue to do what you're doing. He says, The only thing they asked or desired is that we would remember the poor. The Very thing which I was eager to do, so there one request: Paul, keep showing compassion to the poor now, when Paul references the poor here he 's likely referencing the many saints in Jerusalem who were going through a difficult season, who Paul had just showed without being demanded, but by the Spirit prompting his heart that they wanted to come bring financial relief to. In fact, some translations render that statement that we should continue to remember the poor as we already had. Now, my point bring that to your attention is it does not necessarily seem that Peter and James and John were instructing Paul that his role in his church work was to try and eradicate poverty. That as a Christian, if you're going to be effective, Paul, you need to get out there and eradicate poverty. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. You know, I encourage you, if you have a heart to reach those who are less fortunate, as God's children, it seems that our first and foremost command is to make an effort by the spirit of the Lord to care for our own family. And when you read the New Testament, Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother, that spiritual brother, his brother in need, shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? James, writing to us, says, If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and you say, Depart in peace and be filled, but don't give him the things you have, what profit is that? Again, I see the New Testament saying the primary responsibility first and foremost of the church isn't to go out and to do social gospel work and to eradicate poverty. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't help the poor and the less fortunate. But what I see is God saying, I want you to be led of the spirit. And when your fellow family members in the body of Christ are struggling, if you can help or do something, walk in love. Because the fruit of the spirit is what? Love not speaking in tongues, giving prophecies, it's love. It's practical acts of loving demonstration as God's family cares for one another and the world looks in and goes, wow, something's unique about those people and they recognize it's the spirit of the Lord.